The following is a presentation from the Recycling Council of Alberta's 2020 webinar series, Building Resiliency of Material Systems. The RCA would like to thank our supporters for making this webinar possible, including Platinum Sponsor, the Alberta Beverage Container Recycling Corporation. In this segment, we hear from Vanessa Korkel, a policy analyst at the International Institute for Sustainable Development based in Ottawa. Vanessa is the author of Green Strings, Principles and Conditions for a Green Recovery from COVID-19 in Canada, and shares recommendations for a green recovery. Hi everyone, um, it's really great to be here today and um, I just wanted to, to thank uh, the Recycling Council of Alberta for having me on this webinar. Um, the work that we do at IISD is often very policy focused from a at a federal level, but I do think that there's lots of, of things in the Green String Report and lots of concepts about resiliency and green recovery that need to be embraced by the private sector, by municipalities, by regional um, associations. So I'm going to go through some of those today, um, and I just wanted to say hello on screen, but I'm going to you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of PowerPoint presentations, but my presentation is fairly vi visual, so I will be uh, switching over to the PowerPoint just a second. Perfect. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to be talking about today is primarily our Green Strings Report, as well as some of the work that we've been doing at IASD in response to the pandemic. So I'm going to start off by chatting a bit about what the trends are for COVID recovery here and around the world, and some of that you already heard about the impacts on um, uh, on recycling and waste, um, but also I'll go into a bit of detail of where governments are spending money and what initiatives are being supported um, when it comes to fossil versus clean energy. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about our Green Strings Report, which is um, why I was invited to sit on this presentation and explain why we published that report and um, how it can be used as guidance as, as groups and governments respond to COVID. And then we can maybe brainstorm a bit about how this could be applied at a local or regional level. So at ISD, when the, when the uh, pandemic hit, um, we immediately started wondering what was happening behind the scenes, so to speak. So we had all governments rolling out lots of measures to protect uh, people's health, but at the same time, there was a lot of um, movement to protect economies as well. Um, and what tends to happen in these kind of moments is that um, money can support the status quo, which as we know, the status quo is not working for us from a climate or biodiversity perspective. Um, so we decided to band together with a number of other research institutes to track public money for energy and recovery packages. Um, and this also includes relief packages. Um, so I, just going back to the theme of resiliency, I think it's also important to remember that um, resiliency can also be a negative thing. You know, we have a very fossil fuel based economy, we have a capitalist economy that isn't working for everyone from an equity perspective, that system is very resilient. Um, and that's actually something we need to work against while we promote resiliency of, of better, more inclusive and climate friendly systems. So we launched this tracker, which you can check online at energypolicytracker.org in mid-July. We had coverage internationally. We partnered with seven, um, 17 organizations around the world. Uh, so we have researchers from around the world that are tracking um, data related to buildings, transportation, and energy production and consumption. Um, and we basically are categorizing the types of policies that governments are rolling out. So this is in Canada as well as other G20 countries and we're adding countries um, every few weeks. 
So we focused on the G20 countries to figure out where were the trends, where was money being sent. And we update this every week. So this snapshot is from last week. Um, but if you go to the website this week, it'll have an updated number. So the trend right now is that um, just under just over half of the money being spent on relief and recovery from COVID is supporting fossil fuel energy. Um, and we have, you can see in the green there, um, 135 billion supporting clean energy. Um, but the results are quite varied around the world. So to look at Canada, um, Canada, the trend is really depressing, actually. Um, as you know, we're a fossil fuel based economy. Um, you know, the oil and gas sector is a significant part of our GDP. So it makes sense that the COVID relief money is supporting um, existing industries. And we, you know, this this number, the reason it's so big is not only because of what's happening federally, but also what's happening uh, provincially. So for example, one of the reasons this figure is so large is because of Alberta's announcement um, for a loan guarantee and equity into Keystone XL pipeline. Um, there was some natural gas uh, plant purchases in Ontario. Um, this also includes funding for transportation, hi like highways and road infrastructure that um, right now is primarily supporting fossil fuel based transportation. So I do want to stress that this tracker doesn't track the social and economic benefits of any policies, just the type of energy that they're uh, supporting. So here you can you can check out on the website um, kind of the, some of the policies that are happening around the world and where Canada compares. Uh, but you'll see that some countries are clearly doing better than others. Uh, this graph is kind of hard to see, but France is, and the EU in general are, are generally doing much better. Um, in Canada, we had some positive movement from the federal government to tie support to the oil and gas industry to orphan wells reclamation and cleanup and methane emissions reduction. Um, and we also had some support for public transit through the safe restart agreement. So there are some positive movements happening federally, um, but we still haven't seen a, a great big push um, to make sure that the recovery is green. And it'll be interesting to see if um, tomorrow's throne speech uh, does prioritize this as an area or if the government uh, focuses very much on, on what's happening right now as with rising case counts. Um, one thing that we've stressed throughout this process and throughout the work we're doing is that leading organizations from the UN Secretary General to the International Energy Agency have told us that we have four to six months to get recovery and relief packages right. So if we keep throwing money at incumbent industries and in high carbon sectors without um, ways to incent those industries to transition, um, we're not gonna end up in a situation that's very helpful for climate or biodiversity or resiliency for that matter. So in response to the trends we were seeing and in response to seeing how badly the pandemic impacted uh, different marginalized groups around the country, um, Climate Action Network and some partners started the Just Recovery principles, which some of you may have heard of. And I just wanted to give a shout out for that because I've really looked at it as a guiding principle for the work we're doing at IASD. Um, over 500 civil society organizations have signed so far onto these principles, and, and you can check them out at the website listed on, on this PowerPoint. Um, basically, the, the goal was to develop a set of broad principles that aren't climate specific, but much broader um, that we should be looking to uphold as we recover and uh, and rebuild from COVID. And so those six principles are listed here and I'm not gonna go into them in, in any particular detail, but um, they're very much resiliency focused and focusing on that nexus of social equity and environmental action, as well as supporting indigenous rights um, and building solidarity and equity across communities to ensure that the responses we make to COVID aren't entrenching harmful systems, but are instead helping us build resiliency more broadly.
So we took this as a starting point to write our green strings report. And this kind of came out of a discussion that a number of environmental groups had about how we push the federal government to um, design relief and recovery policies that are compatible with our, where we need to go from a climate change perspective. So this report was pitched as kind of the climate change angle of a just recovery um, and really focuses primarily on climate change mitigation. So there's not a, a lot of focus on adaptation or resiliency explicitly in the report, although, or circular economy for that matter, although I would say that in general, the principles can definitely be applied to those themes as well. Um, 14 of Canada's environmental groups signed on to it and we submitted it to a number of different government departments. We met with um, Minister uh, Wilkinson, Gilbo and McKenna and um, a number of other government departments to talk about how government could apply these principles. So I'm just going to spend the next 10 minutes going through um, what the principles are and think about how they could be applied at the subnational level as well. Um, and I would again want to stress that that this is because this is done, like we threw this report together in less than a month. Um, and we did interview a number of, of experts internationally and domestically um, to, to weigh in on some of the different angles that we're not experts on at IEST. So for example, labor groups, uh, indigenous organizations to try to incorporate um, different perspectives in the report and to ensure that we're not looking at things solely with an environmental lens, but we're also looking at that equity piece as well. Um, that said, I do want to stress because of the short time frame for the report, we didn't have the time to look at every group that we wanted to and um, it is mitigation focused. So I, I, I would uh, want to stress that this you know, this is a starting point for the conversation, not the end point. So what are green strings? In short, we know that the government is going to be providing money to, to industry and to provinces and to municipalities to support our recovery and relief from COVID. But how that money is provided really matters. Um, because if we don't provide it in the right way, we'll be entrenching existing systems. So we came up with this list of six reasons why we need to apply green conditions, green, so what we call it green strings, but they're conditions to funding um, to ensure that we put ourselves in the right path. The first is that, quite simply, it's government's right and duty to ensure that what we are doing with recovery is moving us towards broader policy goals. The second, the benefits of a green recovery are backed by evidence. Um, we have numerous examples from uh, the 2008-2009 financial crisis of, that these green recovery mechanisms are actually better job creators. Thirdly, we need a new economic model. We can see this with the job struggle in Alberta and Newfoundland with the oil and gas industry and the workers that have been impacted. And we can't simply continue to try to support industries that are not necessarily as competitive as they once were, and we need to help communities and workers transition to long-term sustainable jobs. Lastly, obviously we need to address the climate crisis um, and that this is intertwined with public health. And also that there is a lot of support for green recovery um, across Canada and some of the polling data um, shows that. So I'm just gonna briefly go through the seven principles and we can talk about them in more detail if people have questions. But um, in short, the first principle is really about um, ensuring that support has conditions for companies to plan for net zero emissions. So this means that we shouldn't be providing funding, um, new funding to emissions intensive industries that are clearly incompatible with our commitments under the Paris Agreement. We should be helping companies create net zero plans to get government funding. Um, 
they don't necessarily need to present it to receive the funding, but they need to promise to develop it and there needs to be check-ins along the way. Um, and also that for certain high carbon industries like the auto sector, oil and gas, aviation, and the building sector, we can um, find ways to, to make specific regulatory changes or specific plans for those industries and commitments to ensure that they meet net zero. So one example I like to point to is, is the Air France bailout, where France basically provided funding, bailout funding to Air France, but they mandated that they could not have short haul flights for distances where rail was more competitive and made more sense from a climate perspective. So flights under two and a half hours. Um, and also there were strict conditions for, for the aviation sector to reduce emissions. So the second is that we need to make sure that funds go towards jobs and stability, not executives and shareholders. So this means things like um, ensuring that uh, funding is benefiting workers and that we don't have stock buybacks, executive bonuses, shareholder dividend payouts, um, that sort of thing where the money is going to people that are already wealthy and, and worsening the inequality gap um, so that we make sure that government funding is, is a net job creator. And we see from the 2008 financial crisis that a lot of the, the bailout money that was provided actually allowed executives and stock markets to profit with no clear benefits to workers. So this principle is all about creating um, conditions on funding and programming that ensures that workers and communities are the ones who benefit from uh, relief measures. And the other climate specific measure in, in this principle is that we need to encourage climate risk disclosure and make, make it mandatory um, as a condition for some of the funding um, so that we have a better understanding and, and can incent sustainable finance more broadly to ensure that um, the private sector has a clear signal of where we need to get to uh, from an investment perspective. The third uh, principle is all about just transition. Um, and this is really something that has a two prongs. The first is finding ways to attach conditions to funding, um, for example, to ensure that workers in industries where there's clearly less of a future, and this might include, um, you know, aviation might not return to 100% that it was before COVID for years. So, um, and also like there's certain sectors of the oil and gas industry where workers might not be able to return to the same jobs they, they once had. So this is about ensuring that those workers can access training um, while being paid on the, on the job, um, that they're not penalized by employers, that there's pension bridging programs. There's a whole suite of recommendations that would fall under this category um, that we go into in the report and that federally there's good guidance on through the task force for coal power communities, workers and communities that the federal government did um, that we think needs to be applied not just to, the, to coal communities, but also um, other high carbon sectors that are going to be seeing transition, not just because of COVID, but because of the transition to a low carbon economy as well as digitalization. Um, there's a whole number of pressures on workers these days, um, and this needs to be taken into account when we're providing funding. This also needs federal action in terms of ensuring we have a Just Transition Act at the federal level, um, but also ensuring that labor and youth are involved in the planning process. The fourth sector section, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail on because there's a lot of groups that have provided recommendations on where we need to actually spend money, but this principle broadly is rather than providing money to industries that are not going to build resiliency and that are not going to be competitive, let's build up the sectors and infrastructure of tomorrow. So that might include anything from decarbonizing our energy and electricity sectors to building retrofits with, with focus on low income and affordable housing to low carbon fuels to public transit to startups and early stage companies that are creating the clean tech solutions we need to thrive in tomorrow's economy. Um, 
And if you want specifics on those, I would love to direct some of you to read the report that our president was involved in, um, published by the Task Force for a Resilient Recovery, which basically makes some recommendations on specific areas government could invest in that are very job intensive, um, that would assist for recovery from COVID, but that would also help us uh, move along our climate change mitigation and resiliency goals. And for a comparison, we can see um, on this graph where money has been spent and committed um, by countries around the world. And so you can see that under so the, the, the bottom two bars here, um, the bottom bar is the United States commitment per capita over the next five years if Joe Biden was to be elected. Um, and the green bar right above it is the EU, which has committed um, around $1,900 per capita um, for green recovery. Um, so this is these are really impressive numbers and there's lots of precedents around the world for ensuring that recovery uh, is focused on, on climate compatible measures. Um, so, so we're hoping that Canada can take a similar path and at least stay up to speed with what's happening internationally. Um, the fifth principle is about strengthening and protecting our environmental policies um, this means we don't roll back uh, measures, but it also means that we're creating new ones that we've promised to. So federally, this means strengthening our Impact Assessment Act, um, ensuring we have a climate accountability legislation so we, we've locked in where we need to get to and we're accountable for emissions reductions, um, as well as strengthening our, our targets under the Paris Agreement. We're still waiting for a 2030 emissions reduction target, and we see this as key towards guiding the private sector and provinces and municipalities towards where we need to get to. Lastly, none of this will actually be effective unless we're actually accountable and transparent to Canadians. So we saw from the 2008 financial crisis when there was an auto sector bailout that uh, with green conditions that there wasn't necessarily enough uh, follow up to ensure that those conditions were applied. So we would like the government to be transparent with the levels of funding that it's providing, uh, whether through loans, um, through organizations like Export Development Canada, or through its regular programming, um, as well as to if there's conditions that are applied, for example, ensuring net zero plans, um, that there's actually a follow-up process for that. So if companies um, have like three to five year check-ins where they can demonstrate progress on meeting their emissions reduction targets. And if companies are not meeting the conditions for funding, um, there could be provisions to uh, adjust, to create penalties, for example, converting loans to grant, or sorry, converting grants to loans, um, for example. And lastly, this principle just ties things back to the just recovery principles, which is that overall, um, green strings can only be effective and climate action can only be effective if it really puts equity front and center. Uh, we know that this, um, this pandemic has overwhelmingly impacted low-income communities, uh, women, migrant workers, indigenous communities, and so these are the groups that we need to be thinking about and putting front and center when we're de designing our recovery programs and policies. Um, and there are some good examples of how different governments are trying to do this. So for example, in Spain, um, they're spending $140 billion, billion euros, sorry, on green transition programs um, through a leave no one behind lens. New York State has ensured renewable energy incentive programs are focused on jobs in low income communities. So there's lots of opportunity here um, to ensure that equity principles are upheld through our strategies to recover from COVID. 
And in terms of localizing um, at a municipal and regional level, there's lots of examples on this slide, but maybe we can talk a bit about this in the Q&A because I'd love to hear your thoughts as well uh, in terms of how uh, innovative partnerships can be created at the regional level, what uh, municipalities can do to, to support social dialogue for just transition and working with the labor movement, um, what kind of investments municipalities can make in resilient infrastructure and net zero planning, and also the kind of signals that can be sent at the local level through bylaws, zoning, building codes, local climate resolutions, electrification policies, um, and most importantly, demanding better from provincial and federal governments and to work with networks of governments and provide feedback on programs and policies to ensure that uh, we are doing the best we can as we tackle this historic challenge. So I'll leave it there uh, because I think I'm already going over time and look forward to the discussion. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this 2020 webinar series podcast. Search for On the Cusp. Alberta Circular Podcast on iTunes and Google Play for more from the RCA. Or visit recycle.ab.ca to see the full presentations.